Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of A Volunteer Review. We have a very, very special guest today. Professor Per Bieland is joining us. Now, to introduce him, I can't do much better than quoting something from this letter I got a few weeks ago from the Mises Institute. And it says, Professor Bieland is among our best and brightest young Austrian economists. He specializes in business and how firms actually produce goods. So his popular writing for outlets like The Entrepreneur magazine reflects a real-world orientation. Per is a well-known Austrian guru on financial Twitter. Many of his threads are master classes in Austrian theory and principles. And in fact, it also says, I think this was the reason they sent the letter, we've asked Dr. Bieland to produce nothing less than a simplified Austrian school version of Henry Hazlitt's great economics in one lesson. Now that that sounds like a really tall order. I've read Economics in One Lesson, and it's really good. So can you tell us a little bit about, about that project? Sure, absolutely. Um, this is really, I, I mean, it, it is intended to be a sort of a short, not version, but a short uh, book that you should be able to just put under anybody's nose, and they should be able to read it and, and understand what Austrian economics is about. So Many people, well, at least who are Austrians, have probably had others ask them questions like, what the heck is this Austrian economics you're, you're talking about? And, and what do you mean when, when you talk about economics in general? And the point is to have this sort of really short, easily accessible, easily easy to understand type of book that you can just, it should be cheap enough and easy enough to read that you can just hand it out to whomever you like. So that that is the point. Which, of course, is, I mean, Henry Hasley would probably be the gold standard, right, for, for, for being, for explaining things in a very simple, easily digestible way. Uh, and what he does in economics in one lesson is pretty much the same as what Frederick Bastiat does in his classic uh, text as well. So I'm trying to do something like that. I can't promise that I get to their level, but... I, I will do my best. And it's it's supposed to be about half the length of economics in one lesson. Okay. Definitely more approachable, it sounds like. Exactly. And I'm also going to, I mean, it's going to be shorter. And also I'm going to cover a whole lot more ground than Henry Hazlitt does. So it, it, it is a challenge. That does sound, it does sound challenging. So then yours is not focusing just on, well, it's more focused on the Austrian side or theories of economics instead of just broadly economics. And that also kind of covers very basic principles of freedom and liberty and property as well, right? Exactly, exactly. So in Hazlitt's book, I mean, he's basically talking about opportunity cost and the trade-off mm-hmm. and how economists think about the world in terms of the seen and the unseen, right? And that's pretty much the whole book is is trying to, get the reader to understand this perspective, which is a very powerful way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Now, what, what, I'm, what I'm supposed to do in, in this book, what I'm trying to do in the book, is really to provide them with this basic economic understanding, but go beyond just the, the, the trade-off and instead cover, in a sense, the 150 years of, of reasoning and theorizing in the Austrian school. So there's going to be a little bit about uh, business cycles. There's going to be a little bit about institutions like property rights. There's going to be something about economic calculation and socialism. 
and there's going to be a few things about a capital structure and there's going to be something about entrepreneurship and also about what economics does and what economics does not do. In, in about half the length of economics in one lesson. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I have 30,000 words, so I'm going to, I better choose them wisely. Well, I'm anxious to read it. I think that's going to be fun. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I just have to write it first. <laughs> Well, uh, changing gears a little bit to the work that you're doing now, if, if I understand correctly, you teach not just about economics generally, but specifically about entrepreneurship. Is that right? That's correct. So I'm, I'm a professor in the School of Entrepreneurship at Oklahoma State. Hmm. And I mean, it's, it's, it would not be correct to say that it is, it is economics, since that's a separate uh, department. So I'm not actually allowed to teach economics for, for that reason. But, of course, you can't really talk about entrepreneurship without the economy. So I, I talk about the role of entrepreneurship or the function of entrepreneurship in the market process. And I also teach a course on Austrian economics because that is sort of outside of the, the, uh, the scope of a, a, a standard economics department. Hmm, I see. So then... Are you teaching people about entrepreneurship or how to be an entrepreneur? Well, in my, my personal case, I teach them about entrepreneurship, what that is and what it does. So how it contributes to economic growth, how to think like an entrepreneur, how to think about their role in the economy and things like that. Of course, if you're taking a degree in entrepreneurship, they're, they're, you're taking a whole lot of courses that help you uh, produce a business plan, how to, how to start a business, pretty hands-on stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I'm on the theory side. So I'm providing sort of the framework, the, the how to think uh, aspect of it. So in, in a sense, the Austrian point of view. Hmm. Okay. Very interesting. And the Austrian view of entrepreneurs, as, as I understand it, they're kind of the, uh, the generating force behind new ideas in the economy, pushing things forward. Exactly. So, I mean, Mises even put it as the driving force of the market economy, right? So any changes that happen in the economy and innovations, all the disruptive power of new ideas and new businesses, this is all the entrepreneur. So, of course, it's a very important part of uh, the market and part of understanding the economy. So in a sense, you can explain pretty much anything using entrepreneurship you probably shouldn't uh, you shouldn't uh, push it too far right something that explains everything doesn't really explain a whole lot <laughs> um but uh, in the market economy i mean all the change that we see the, the the value creation aspect of the market that that is the entrepreneur okay yeah it sounds like the kind of thing that is an interesting way of looking at different things a different point of view that people don't usually think of yeah, exactly. So it, it, it is about thinking in, in terms of value, which it sounds a little odd to, to say that, oh, it's this new perspective, thinking about the economy in terms of value. I mean, didn't everybody think about it in terms of profit and salary and stuff like that? But I mean, the, the, the real question is, how do you create more value, right? Because the, the, res the resources are there. There aren't really more natural resources around, right? So we, we have the same as we had before. The question is, where does growth come from? How come we have so much 
higher standard of living today and probably a couple of years from now too than, than we already have. How do we generate more and where did it come from? I mean, those, those questions, I would say, require entrepreneurship as a, a big part of the explanation. It's very interesting. A useful, a useful way of thinking or way to address people who say that in order to make more money, you have to be taking it away from someone else. Exactly. So, so it, it sort of flips that view of the world onto its head, right? Because value is actually created. Mm-hmm. And, and you realize when you think about the economy in entrepreneurial terms, well, the market economy, I should say, when you think about it in entrepreneurial terms, it really is about creating value for others and thereby getting a cut for yourself, right? Mm-hmm. So the best way to serve yourself is to serve others. Yes. And that, that was been something that I've been thinking about for a while. And one thing that I wanted to talk to you about being a professor of economics or entrepreneurship, but a doctor of economics, you know what I mean? Yeah, so, I am an economist. I mean, so it's, it, it is confusing. <laughs> so I'm sure I'm not the first person to have thought of this, but I was reading uh, Mises and uh, Milton Friedman and a bunch of economists, and I was thinking of the theories of economic action always being uh, trading value for value. And Mises, all human action is essentially economic action. <clears throat> and I thought, okay, what about what we do at Voluntarism in Action with charity? Because charity, people just think of giving, and it seems one-sided. And I thought, oh, wait a minute, there must be a reason that people are giving. And it occurred to me, uh, Rothbard called them, I think, psychic gains, where psychologically you feel good about having given someone something. So from it sounds weird, but from a strictly economic perspective, I thought, so is it, is it logical then to say that the person who's giving is buying that satisfaction from the person they're helping? Or am I... Am I not thinking about that correctly? No, I think you are thinking about it correctly. So I mean, there, there, are, there are two things to, to say about this, really. In, in any action, what we're trying to do is just become better off in some personal sense, right? So however we want to define it for ourselves, the reason we act is because we think that doing so will create a better world for ourselves than otherwise would be the case. It doesn't really matter if you're trading with someone or if you're producing something or if you're just taking a couple of steps into the sun <clears throat> or if you're helping someone else to feel good or whatever it is. There's some, some psychic gain or psychic profit that you're hoping for. Whether or not you actually get there, I mean, it's uncertain, right? You don't know that you're going to create exactly what you think you're going to create. Mm-hmm. And, and that's true with, with every, any action because otherwise you wouldn't choose to do it. If you think you're going to be worse off, why, why would you do anything at all, mm-hmm. right? So on that sort of very basic level, yeah, it, it, it's definitely the case. Exactly what it is that makes you uh, go into charity and, and spend time and effort and perhaps money on, on charity, that's probably different for different people. I mean, some people are simply in it for the gratitude. Some people are in it to just see people better off. Some people are... are are just intrinsically motivated to just do good things, right? So it, it, it depends what, what, for an economist though, I mean, this doesn't really happen in a market. It's not a market transaction because it is what, as you said, one-sided. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really hard since we're talking only about the psychic gains. It's really hard to know if you are making these people better off as much as is actually possible. Yes, and I saw um, a very interesting Twitter thread that you had written, and I'll link to that in the description, where you made the point that some people, uh, rather than actually wanting to help people, they want to either they want to be seen helping people, or some people, they just want to see the rich worse off. So they want to see them. I think the example you used was them working in a soup kitchen instead of developing software, whatever they happen to do. Right. So that's, that's an example that sort of personally, my psychic well-being in a sense, I, I, it pisses me off when, when you see CEOs and highly productive people take a, a day or a week off and serve soup instead. Cause I'm just, as an economist, I'm, I'm sort of a little bit brain damaged to think about the trade-off, right? So I'm thinking, okay, if it were really the case that they wanted to make lives better for these people who are homeless and can't get food, then wouldn't the best course of action be to provide them with as much food as possible, right? Well, then if you are a CEO and say you're making like a thousands of dollars in one day and you say, nah, not today. I'm going to take time off and I'm going to serve soup. Well, imagine if you instead had worked that day and taken that full salary and paid people to serve soup. You would get a whole lot more soup served mm-hmm. than if you do it yourself, right? So the trade-off if, is if that is what they're actually trying to do to make lives better in terms of serving soup for these people, then it's a huge loss, right? Which, which to me then means that something else must be motivating these people, right? So maybe they want to be involved themselves. Maybe they want to actually meet the people that they help. And maybe there's sort of a social aspect of it. Maybe it's just signaling, right? Showing people that, hey, I'm doing this. I'm giving up all this much, mm-hmm. right? And, and that might be, I mean, that's a value too, right? For them psychically. Yeah, it's not yeah. a super, a super uh, big value for the the people who are actually starving, right? Yeah, helping them, but how much more could you be helping them if you went about exactly. it way? Yeah. Exactly, and that and that's the economic problem, right? We're economizing on on all those resources we have, try to get as much as possible out of them, mm-hmm. and serving soup. Yeah, you you are serving soup, but maybe you could have for that day's pay, I don't know, hired. 15 people serving soup. Well, that would be a whole lot more effective in terms of actually solving the hunger problem. That's really interesting because people usually just think of that as a good thing, but from an economic perspective, it could be a net loss to not only the person doing the serving, but to the people being served. Right. It could be. And and I mean, as you mentioned before in, in that thread, I, I talk a little bit about why is it that people sort of look down to it? Because a CEO who would choose to just donate one day's salary instead of spending one day in the soup kitchen, you'd say that guy is not doing a whole lot, right? But if, if that guy would give up that day and instead serve soup, we would, we would say he's actually trying, he's actually doing something, right? Even though if we just think about it for a couple of seconds, we would realize that 
no, the effect is much, much lower when he's actually doing that, right? So there's something else that in, in our assessment of what, what that guy is doing, that we prefer the lower outcome, the worse outcome, just because we want to see him or her serve soup, mm-hmm. right? Instead of actually saving the people, which is, to me, is it's a confusing because it's it's a counterproductive right yeah i think i think part of it you said if we think about it i think a lot of people instead of thinking with their heads they think with their emotions and they want to see people being helped because that it affects their emotions more but if they would stop to think about it is this really the best way to help these people so maybe not maybe not yeah, and there's a time and place for for emotions and feelings, of course, right? Yeah. But if this is something Mises talks about this a little bit too, with respect to regulation, saying that well, one goal is the stated goal, another is what actually comes out of something, right? And and very often we choose a means and we state the goal to be something, but we sort of realize that that means is not going to take us to that goal; it's going to take us somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So. Is that what we're actually aiming for? Or, I mean, it's, it's hard to tell, of course, and it's different in, in, for different people and in different situations too. But, I mean, we, we, this world could be so much better, right? Let's put it that way. Yeah. I mean, that's for sure. I mean, there are, there are people who I think who genuinely, genuinely want to help and who do go about it the right ways. Then there are people who help the wrong ways and then there are even people who make things more difficult for other people i think regulation by the government plays a huge role in that and i was i was thinking about this too in relation to charity as an economic function or looking at charity from an economic perspective government welfare could that be viewed as central planning of charity from an economic viewpoint? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it really is a one-size-fits-all one kind of system. I mean, in many cases, the welfare state was, I mean, it were, were private functions expropriated by the state. So very often you had like sick pay, that types of insurance. You had, had groups of workers who had sort of a, basically an account where they all paid into every month. And if someone got ill, then, then that person would get money from that account, right? So they took care of, the, of themselves. Uh, that, was a, in groups. that was a mutual association or? It like- could be. I think it's different in different countries exactly how they did it, but, but something like that, right? So they, they arranged with that themselves. And of course, then, then you have the social pressure too, that you're not just going to take the money and uh, yeah, I'll pretend to be sick a little while because those are your friends. Right and, and 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 they they will not like you a whole lot if, if you do that. Let's put it that way, right? Uh, and this, the same thing with with taking care of poor in your neighborhood, um, feeding uh, the hungry, things like that. Those were functions. I mean, people are overall pretty friendly and generous. Um, and very often we're sort of relieved of these problems where we would have and usually did take care of these problems and instead someone else that stepped in usually the government and said you know what let's make this a large-scale solution 
and we'll just tax people a little bit and then we'll just take care of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it it's a glorious promise, right? It, it sounds really, really good. Yeah, we'll, we'll fix everything if you just give us uh, a little bit of the power and the money. But... Yeah, exactly. But the problem, of course, is you, you create weird incentives. So suddenly, I mean, it's you gain if you pretend to be sick and if you just play the system and so forth, and you don't really have those uh, uh, social ties with people paying directly into into the system anymore right so if you're tricking the system well then nowadays people might just say oh good on you i mean but but when it was your friends and you together collecting this money and trying to have some money if something more happens to 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 you or to to someone else then it wouldn't be oh good on you cheating to uh, pretending to be sick right so you create different incentives but also you have the problem with what some workers in say one factory in some town, what would what they would benefit from, well, they would probably know it. But would someone in the capital city hundreds of miles away know exactly what they would need? No, probably not. And it is pretty different li- living in, in rural America or living in Manhattan. Right? If you lose your job, you're gonna you're gonna need a whole lot more money to stay in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And the situation is very different. So if you have one system. Either you have to make it really, really complicated to just fit in all these situations, or you just make one rule that applies to all, which means it's not going to really fit to anyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it seems like the the central solution, there's an incentive there to make things as simple as possible because you don't have to solicit donations. You don't have to show results. The money's just going to keep coming in. In fact, it seems like if you don't do very well, then you can say, we need more money in order to do a better job. And then the taxes come in and more money keeps coming in. Right. So, so that, is, that is the incentive problem on the other side. Those actually running the system or designing the system or working within the system. I mean, they're, they're doing good things. The, the problem is, again, what we talked about before, are they doing the best they can? Or are they even close to doing the best they can? Well, they can't really tell if it's one system and the money just keeps flowing in. And especially since the incentive is, well, there's a budget every year in the government and they have to allocate funds to give all these departments budgets and the departments they give, they give all these different projects budgets and so forth, right? Well, if you have a surplus at the end of the year, the result is going to be that you get a smaller budget next year, right? Because you didn't need all that money. Really? But if you, if you spend more than you were allotted, then obviously you had a greater need, right? So the incentive is to be as wasteful as possible, which is, of course, terrible. Yes. Yeah. Since it's money that's being expropriated from people. And that, that too, it, thinking of charity specifically, the psychic benefit of having helped someone, even if it might not be the most efficient way, is gone completely because now you're not giving your money or your time to a person. The government is taking it. And the benefit that would have accrued to the giver is now non-existent. Right. And, and we have also created sort of a, a, a core of workers for the government system where where they can either benefit themselves through 
putting the money in their favorite projects, whether they're actually effective or not, doesn't really matter, but they can get the psychic benefit from these projects that someone else is paying for. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have a thousands of people working in these government departments and, and, and all, all of these projects and everything. And what they do, I mean, how are they actually evaluated at the end of the day? How much did they solve the problem? Well, I mean, they, they don't, they shouldn't get to make the problem go away because that means the end of their department or project. Right. Yeah. So they need to keep the pro- problem. If the problem gets worse, they actually get more money. I know. And right? I was I was thinking about that in in contrast to what I imagine would be a perfectly free market, so to speak, in charity. I think people, a lot of people, when they donate, they like to see results. Like they like to see the people that are helped. And you contrast someone who you know, their house burned down, for instance, and their family doesn't have a place to live. So to contribute money, they build a house, and then let's say they send out thank you cards to the people who donated with a picture of their house. And wow, the psychic gain from that, incredible. But if you see a panhandler on the street, and no matter how much money he gets, he's there every day, year after year. There was the benefit of actually helping someone isn't there after a while, or so it would seem to me. So it would seem in a free market that the charity organizations that can actually show a benefit of lifting people out of poverty over time, those are the ones who are going to get more and more donations and be able to help more and more people. And it's going to stimulate them to be more and more efficient at actually helping people doing what they say they're going to do so i don't know if that is all in my head kind of taking the the free market principles and applying them to that but i think it could work yeah and i i think you're right i mean that's you need that connection between doing good deeds and actually having good results Mm -hmm. right and that's super hard in charity because you're using money from one party to benefit another party and you're deciding how you're doing it, but you can't really read people's minds, right? So you have to sort of guess. And sometimes it's easy because they say, they say that they're starving. So you serve them food, right? That's easy enough. But in the village somewhere, you think that they need education. So you build a school for them. Is that actually what was on, at the top of their list? Is it that, that actually what will save them um, yeah. most it's not clear. And then, and what what are you going to teach there? Are you going to teach what American school children uh, would want to know? Are you going to teach what they need to know, what they're already learning? Uh, there's, I think that's why, similar to government, keeping charity as local as possible, where the needs yeah. can be known and can be addressed at a local level, and you can also see the results at a local level, is right. is wonderful. I mean, for for the, for the school. Is there even a teacher? I mean, the, you, you build a school. Well, fine. So you have a school building. But is there actually a teacher? Is there actually someone available to pay that teacher's salary? Yes. Can, and can people actually afford to send their kids to school? Because if they're poor, they probably need to work in order not to starve. So maybe a school might not be a very good idea, even though it seems like part of the problem for the country is a lack of education. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So you have to be very careful with what they, what it seems like they need from your perspective, what they say that they need and what they might actually need. Cause that could be a third thing. Mm, that's true. And again, from the economic perspective, I know one of the, uh, let's say, instead of building a school, um, a company went in there and built a factory and hired a bunch of people. Of course, a lot of people would get upset at that. All those children, they need to be in school learning things. It's a sweatshop over there, taking advantage of them. But now, instead of working in the fields all day for 20 cents, they're working in the factory for a dollar. And that might seem pretty pathetic to an American, but it just multiplied their salary by four or five times. Right. And especially if you look at the working conditions, it seems like terrible. Who would work in a factory like that? It has to be exploitation. But comparing it to toiling in the field and all the uncertainty and the low income, it might actually be a lot better which is why we often see people line up and stand in line for a long time to get, get a job in these, uh, in these sweatshops, right? Because they pay better and they're actually better jobs. I'm not saying that they're perfect in any sense, right? And they could probably be even better, right? So I cover that in, 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 in my book, The Seen, The Unseen, and The Unrealized, uh, where I talk about sweatshops um, and, and the problem uh, that they actually are from, from a sort of regulation perspective. But we should recognize that in, in, in our history in the West, we had sweatshops too. I mean, those were the factories in the cities. Mm-hmm. And it's not that anybody was actually forcing them to work there, but people left their farms to go to the dirty city to work seemingly endless days in the factory. Why? Because they were starving in their villages, right? They were a burden there. They couldn't produce enough food to to keep themselves alive. So they were basically parasiting on, on everybody else. So they left for the city and made a little money, horrible lives still, right? But comparing to what, what the op- option was, it was not that bad. And they might actually made, make a little money to send back to their parents and, and siblings and, and what have you in, in the villages. So many of them chose that life for a reason, some were tricked. I mean, there's always, always some bastards out there, right? So th- that's always a problem. But overall, it was actually part of the development of, of our countries. I think, I think that's one reason why uh, as important a function as charity is for helping people who are distressed, economic growth is still hugely important. And part of that is just business as usual. I think part of it is trying to channel charity funds to not just solve an immediate need, but to help lift people up in ways that are personalized, that are actually going to help them improve their situation. And that at at Voluntarism in Action, we're we're all volunteers. We all have real jobs, so to speak. And this is what we do in our off time. And I think, I think that's a key thing because like what we said with the government, if there's people whose salaries are dependent on people being in want, then that's an incentive to try to keep people who keep people in want and keep them. Yeah, yeah it is. And it, is, and it sounds horrible. I mean, just think about it. what kinds of people would take those jobs, but it's not really about those people. 
right? So the, the reason the government is in, ineffective and inefficient in everything that it does is not that people aren't working hard. It's that the rewards and punishments that they get are always a little bit in the wrong direction, mm-hmm. right? So they can work really hard. If you work really hard, and, but you use the wrong rules, the wrong procedures, the wrong processes, you're not going to be very effective. You just have to work really, really, really hard to get a little bit of results. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're seeing. So, I mean, the, it's, it's not a problem with the people because I think very often, well, I mean, they're, they're attracting people that might not be the best for the job too, but I think very often it's the system. So the people are, are working against the system, but they can't change the system from within because it's coming from above, right? Yeah, I think, I think that's what people, they, they want to help, I think, at a, at a basic level. And the easiest way they see is with existing systems like the state welfare. And they think, oh, that's great. That's already happening. But they don't take a step back and look at what's actually going on to think with their minds and see what is actually happening with this money. How much is being spent? Where is it going? Are people actually being lifted out of poverty? And then they would see that the results might not be what they could be. Yeah. Imagine if, I mean, just think about these if all these funds and all these work hours were put into something effective, wouldn't we have solved a lot of the problems already? Yeah, yeah, you would think so. And, and you're creating this, this really disastrous, destructive kind of mentality too, because you probably uh, met people like this too, where, where people claim, well, I already pay a lot in taxes. So why would I donate money? Why would I, because I, I have problems on my own. Right, I'm trying to stay afloat. I'm working my butt off. I'm not going to give more money because the government is already taking care of this. The government promises. I pay taxes. I don't have a choice, but I still pay a lot of money into these programs. So I'm not going to help. Mm-hmm. Right. So it creates this problem on the in the other end too. So the overall effect is, it's a disaster. Yeah, I think there's there's that issue of people already uh, thinking oh, the government's got it covered. And there's the fact that people have less money to donate because the government took it. Right. And then there's, and it's kind of the uh, situation where now if someone wants to start a charity, they have to compete with what's already being offered by the government who has limitless resources because they can just keep taking more money and so they've already set the bar, so to speak, at that at that place. And it's very difficult, I think, for a private charity to be able to keep up with someone who has infinite resources, not literally, you know what I mean, even if they're not particularly efficient with those resources. Right. It's what an economist would call the crowding out effect, right? Because you, you can't really compete with with free. And they have so much resources that, well, okay, so you're going to do the same thing. Well, you have to make people actually part with their money so that you can put that in your little project. But you might end up just doing something right, right across the street from where the government has a big office with hundreds of employees maybe and lots of resources. Mm-hmm. So what are you going to do? I mean, it's just such a small change on the margin, maybe. So it, it, 
does it really matter? Well, you never know. That's true. That's true. Although I think, <clears throat> I think to an extent, it does. Because we see at, at VIA, we see people who do get helped by us and by other people. And you can see their gratitude, see them being lifted out. And I've actually seen this. That helps to generate more more donations, more people who want to help both with us and on their own. Uh, for instance, we've got a program right now with uh, we're distributing seeds that a company donated to us to people who want to start gardens to feed their families, to help teach their children self-sufficiency. And a word started to get out. And then we had more seed companies contacting us and say, hey, we want to donate some seeds too. We want to help out as well. And I think that's really cool because it proves, first of all, how generous people can be. But also, kind of the, uh, the economic, uh, again, the economics, but bringing in the economic aspect of it because an advantage for uh, a company or a firm is advertising. And if they're seen, you know, giving out seeds to help to this charity to help people. Well, that's, that's some good advertising right there. That's going to identify people with their brand and say, wow, I want to buy those. This is a great company. I want to get their seeds. So there's, again, on the free market side, there's more of that uh, incentive to try to help people. Yeah, it's where we started out, right? right? I mean, in the marketplace, you serve yourself best by serving others. Mm-hmm. Right, that's that's value creation at the very core, and then you you get a cut of it, whether it's psychic or financial, it doesn't really matter that much, right? Because it, it depends on what you're aiming for. But there are really no contradictions like that. And I think for in terms of poverty and strife and, and people suffering and everything, and to me, the first thing would be to stop keeping them poor. Because because many of them are 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 stopped from actually getting out of, of the situation they are in. Many need a push, they need a little help and things like that. But very often it's, they're poor because we don't trade with them, for instance, in developing uh, nations. Mm. So instead we we dump our foods there and and destroy their own producers, Mm. right? And of course, we give aid to to the political leaders who are going to use it to just (laughs) cement their power uh, rather than actually help people. I mean, had you instead said, okay, let's just trade freely with these people. Well, in any voluntary exchange, both parties expect to be better off or they wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Right? There, there's no contradiction there. Yeah. And I think an interesting aspect of how technology is moving forward is we're able to connect more and more with people, even on the other side of the globe. Uh, for instance, you you mentioned... Um, giving to political leaders in theory to help the people that they keep it to themselves. One thing that we've been able to do is to partner with a village in Sierra Leone and we send them money directly with Bitcoin. So we don't go through the government or fiat currency or through their government. It goes right to them. And they 
the guy who worked with Mustafa, he's really, really meticulous. He sends us receipts of all of the stuff that he buys for it, supplies for the village. And so and that's really cool that we can go directly to the people who need help instead of all of the intermediaries who always take it, even if they're, even if they're well-intentioned, even if they want to help people, they usually get a cut for themselves along the way. And so the amount that actually gets to the people you're trying to help gets smaller and smaller, the more layers you have to go through. Yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, they, at, at a minimum, they have to cover their costs. Mm. Right. And then of course you have some actors who are uh, not, not totally honest, maybe. Right. And then that that's enough to destroy the whole supply chain there. No, I think the technology issue is, is, I mean, we're looking at a very bright future because now we in, in very poor countries, they have cell phones. That's how they do business. That's how they, how they, they communicate with others. They might not even have roads, but they have a cell phone where they can do all the banking and everything. And they can keep track of, of their crops and, and their animals or what, what have you. Right. So they use this and they're sort of leapfrogging us because they don't have to go through producing all this physical infrastructure. That is a, I mean, when we get to, to our level, it's really a pain in the butt because it costs a lot of money to just, to just upkeep and maintenance. Yes. that they don't have to go through. They can instead adopt wireless technologies and cell phones and things like that and use that instead and build something that is probably better. <laughs> when you said the roads, they don't even have roads, came into my mind, but what about the roads? <laughs> but that's another thing, without, without the government constantly taking that huge chunk to pay for infrastructure, what could the free market and entrepreneurs have developed to replace that, to do it differently, stuff, stuff that we probably couldn't even, couldn't even imagine right now. Yeah, exactly. And one way of thinking about it is, okay, so here in the U.S., we have the, the interstate highway system, a government project, and they just, uh, I guess they, they draw, drew lines on the map, like north and south, east and west, and let's connect all these dots, right? Mm-hmm. Well, had that not happened, where would entrepreneurs have paved new roads? Probably not exactly where the government did, right? Mm-hmm. Probably not as many. And they would probably, they would do it where they expected people to benefit from writing more than not, right? And they would probably also invest in much more highly, high quality roads where they expected people to drive a lot and lower quality roads where they expected people to not drive a lot, right? Because that's just makes sense if it's your investment. That's true. Right. But now we have basically the same kinds of roads everywhere and they're falling apart. Right. And we have maintenance costs that are just skyrocketing. It's bad. And- I lived in Alaska for a couple of years and uh, every, every summer they had to fix almost all of the roads because like you said, it's the same kind of roads that they use in the rest of the United States, but Alaska is not like the rest of the United States. And every yep. summer, the roads are broken. But if you have a bottomless pot of money to draw from, what does it matter? You just keep repairing them. We're keeping people employed. Yeah, and we're back to, back to where we started, right? I mean, if you cannot fix the roads, if the, the most annoying potholes are still there you will probably get a bigger budget next time because people are complaining Mm. right 
So why fix the, the most urgent problems? Uh, maybe not. At least on the margin, it, it's probably better for you and the organization and, and your ability to, to uh, fix all the potholes in the future if you don't fix the biggest one right now, which doesn't make any sense at all. But it, it's completely logical from their point of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from economic sense, it's not there. Looking at the economy as a whole, but from the point of view of their pocketbook, yeah, yeah, and if you look at it from the from the perspective of, of the customer, I mean, imagine if the driver was actually paying for driving on the road, and you didn't fix the potholes that destroyed people's cars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can say you can say what am I what am I paying taxes for? But you don't have a choice. If you say what am I paying my road company for? You can say I'm going to switch to a different road company. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and you're going to say, I'm not going to pay for this next time my driver because I have to drive it, right? And I'm not going to pay for this because you're not fixing the potholes, right? Or we're going to carpool or we're going to, if, if it's bad enough, we'll build another road. Yeah. <laughs> and there's, there's so many different options like that when, when people have the freedom to do what they want to do, to make, make their own voluntary associations with each other of any kind, as long as they're not uh, being violent and coercive. Amen. That's something you're going to cover in your book, right? Uh, well, we'll see. It's going to be more economic theory, but it's, oh, okay. uh, it's, it's going to be about how to think about the economy. So, I mean, this type of discussion should be maybe not ex- explicit in the book, but it's going to be something that, that people the types of discussions that people can have after reading the book. I mean, people who are not economists who are not libertarians or whatever, but who have just, they just read through the book because they want to know what the heck is this about. And then they start seeing things and they start connecting the dots. I mean, that's, that's the point. Hmm. So, so the object of your book is not to explain everything. So, so to speak, but to get people thinking about the basics Exactly. So it's about uh, helping people gain economic literacy. Nice. Do you have a name for the book yet? Well, I, I have a tentative name, and it's Austrian Economics, a primer. Nice. I like it. All right. Short well, and sweet, right? It's true. It's very accurate. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Per, for coming on with us. Thank you for sharing some of your insights on economics, how it impacts charity, and uh, some insights about the future, you know, what we can do, how make the world a better place. So thanks very much, and I hope you have a great day. Thanks, same to you. Hey, thank you very much for watching this video. If you liked it, please like, share, subscribe, drop a comment. If you'd like, please go over and visit our website and donate to one of our causes. VIA couldn't do anything without the generous support of donors like you.